May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Everyone loves a good story. One of the gifts of a really good story is that it transports you out of your current time and place and takes you somewhere else. That's why the opening lines of some stories acquire such iconic status in our memories. When you hear, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. You were immediately caught up. I picked one for everybody. Uh, you're, you're immediately caught up into the world. You can guess which one was for me. Uh, you're, you're caught up into the world of these stories. And the best stories we go back to over and over again. It's because we're entranced by the characters and the action, the moral dilemmas and the challenges that each story holds. The fact is that stories stick in our brains better than almost anything else and they often have something to teach us. As Christians, we love a good story. Jesus knew this, of course. That's why so much of his teaching came in the form of parables. And those parables and other stories of Scripture stick with us even after many years. So if I say to you, once there was a baby whose mother put him in a basket and hid him in the river, or a man had two sons, you will... Maybe not instantly, but eventually get around to remembering Moses and his little floating bassinet or the parable of the prodigal son. Stories hold communities together by conveying a sense of shared identity. This is true in our families as well, isn't it? Maybe you have a story of how your family arrived in America or how they got to this part of the country in particular or how you met your spouse or your best friend. Sometimes, of course, those stories are in dispute. Who spoke to who first? Who was wearing what? When and where it actually happened? And all of those things matter for how stories are told and how they shape our imaginations. The details are important. So today I want to tell you the story of one of our family members, one of our forerunners in the faith as we celebrate the feast of St. Charles Lwanga and the other Ugandan martyrs. That's why we're in red today, because red is, of course, the color of the martyrs. So why? Why does it actually matter who a church is named for anyway? Why bother naming a church for anyone at all? Why not just call it Central Kitsap Anglican or something similarly boring and be done with it? Sorry, that's to reveal my cards. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, why, why not just give a church a directional name and call it good? We name churches for saints because the saints have something to teach us about how to follow Jesus Christ. And today we remember St. Charles because he's an example that we can learn from even now. Now, some of you have heard this story before, but that's okay because in church we tell the same stories over and over and over again because we don't assume that we actually remember them all that well. So if perhaps you have heard this story once or twice, it won't kill you to hear it again. 
So in a previous church life, St. Charles referred to another St. Charles. There are at least two decent Charleses that we know of. They were both martyrs, and neither of them ever made it to Washington State. So when our church was founded, the English king Charles I, who was a high church Anglican, was beheaded following the Second Civil War in England. He was thought to be a patron saint worth claiming. And so the church was named for King Charles. And so it was for over two decades that we went about our life. But as the growing Anglican movement in the United States began to pick up steam, as we moved into a new era, a new identity was necessary, and Charles Lawanga of Uganda was both a convenient and an inspired choice. So we kept the name Charles, but we switched saints midstream. And actually, what this has done is it points to a huge change in the scope of Anglicanism in our lifetime. King Charles I of England and Charles Lawanga of Uganda are distinctive saints. But as the church that bears the name of Charles, we have to remember our new story. And the distance from England to Uganda is just as long as it is spiritually as it might be geographically. Today, what started as an English colonial church, the Anglican Communion, is actually led overwhelmingly by Christians in the global south. We're part of a worldwide communion with more than 79 million members in 160 different countries. The World Christian Database actually estimates that there are 43 million Anglicans in sub-Saharan Africa alone. And in fact, if we take the Living Church magazine at its word, if you took a demographic sample this morning of the folks in Anglican churches, the average member is a 21-year-old Nigerian woman. So as a church, we have these deep African roots. Now, no one can truly pinpoint when Christianity arrived in Africa. We know that in the early days of the church, North Africa was a stronghold of the faith. There were vibrant desert monastic communities full of monks and nuns at prayer. Theologians like St. Augustine of Hippo, probably the greatest theologian the Western church ever produced. And the Anglican flavor of Christianity came to Africa primarily first through traders and then through missionary activity. And that's where our part of the story really picks up. Starts with a bishop, which is not really always how things go. But in this case, there was a bishop named James Hannington. He was an Englishman consecrated as a missionary bishop to Uganda. And he arrived there in 1885, intending to begin the work of a missionary. He started to build relationships and to begin to try to plant churches. But his work, unfortunately, never really got off the ground. Hannington was coming into Uganda, and as he crossed the Nile River, was taken prisoner by warriors sent by the king, Mwanga. The bishop was kept prisoner for a little over a week and then executed, along with his whole traveling party at the tip of two spears in October of 1885. And with his last words, he's reported to have said something like, tell the king that I die for Uganda. Now, this martyr's death would have ripple effects that Hannington himself might have hoped for, but probably could never have guessed at. I wonder what he would think about us this morning. 
His story was just part of a much larger thing that God was doing because his interest in serving the people of Uganda inspired others. His execution did not end Christianity in Africa. This is probably the best that we should hope for as Christians, that our lives are not just our own, that somehow our stories don't end with our deaths. That's why we disciple our children. That's why we seek to love and serve our neighbors. Because life is not just what we do while we're here. It's about how we share the love and grace of Jesus Christ with others in the time that we're given. So the execution of Bishop Hannington actually kicked off a period of persecution for the Christians around the court of the king. But killing Christians could not kill the church. As we said in our collect this morning, and as Tertullian wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so after the execution of many leaders, Charles Lawanga took over duties as a teacher of the faith to the young boys who were servants in the king's household. Now, Charles had never been to seminary. He had no formal training, but he was a gifted natural leader. And as he gathered others for prayer services and taught them to be disciples, he began to grow a little church in that place. He even actually baptized some of the new converts himself. But the house of the king was a dangerous place to be a believer. And Charles and his little group quickly came into direct conflict with the king, who had already shown himself to be violently opposed to the expansion of the church in his land. So when confronted about their trust in Christ and threatened with their lives, Charles and several of these new converts refused to recant and instead confessed their belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So they were taken prisoner and condemned to death in the spring of 1886. In June of that year, on June 3rd, the Feast of the Ascension itself, Charles and 21 others were led out to a hill near what is now Namungogo, Uganda. And they were martyred there by burning at the stake. As the vocal spiritual leader of the group, Charles went first. And the report is that when he was taunted by his executioners, as the flames were rising around his feet, he replied, you are burning me, but it is as if you are pouring water over my body. Please repent and become a Christian like me. Charles was eventually overcome by the flames while still in prayer, and he died without renouncing Jesus Christ. And the others would follow shortly thereafter. Now, Charles died doing what Christian martyrs have always done, starting with Stephen in Acts chapter 7, right down to persecuted Christians in our own day. He faced his tormentors, and he gave an honest testimony to the love of God that had changed his life. And he was ready to face the consequences, dire though they might be. And because he was faithful, because he did not turn aside from the suffering set before him, we remember him today. And we give thanks to God for his witness, because in what seemed to be a defeat, like Christ himself, Charles and his fellow martyrs won a great victory. Persecution did not end as a result of their sacrifice, but neither did Christians in Uganda give up their faith in Jesus. The martyrdoms 
produced a result entirely opposite to the king's intentions. Charles and his companions, who walked to their death singing hymns and praying for their enemies, so inspired many of the bystanders that they began to seek instruction from the few believers who were left behind. And within a few years, the original handful of converts had multiplied many times and spread far beyond the royal court. In fact, in that same region, just a few decades later, a movement of the Holy Spirit started with people repenting and confessing their sins and receiving the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit to amend their lives. What we now know historically as the East African Revival had a profound impact on the church in that region. And eventually, it spread all around the world. We are the spiritual offspring of that movement of God because it changed the church in Africa from a colonial church into one ready to respond to the call of Jesus to make disciples of all nations. As the Ugandan Archbishop Henry Luke Arambe wrote, the legacy of the East African revival is its strong emphasis on the need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This influence is not unique to Uganda. It's part of historic Anglicanism. He went on to say that I long for the day when the global reputation of Anglicans is our insistence on a relationship with Jesus Christ that is characterized by personal experience and repentance and shared through testimonies. And all of this started with Charles and the other martyrs. Now, I am convinced that that kind of faithfulness is a guide for us. We are seeking to be a church that worships and serves and lives together for the sake of our community. And that commitment takes time and careful attention, but most of all, it takes faithfulness. We can learn from Charles what faithfulness to Jesus actually looks like. It is sacrificial and personal and it requires that we continue to preach the gospel no matter what challenges we might face. We are rooted in this worldwide Anglican revival, a thing founded on knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That knowledge should lead us to prayer and praise and send us out together in the power of the Spirit to love and serve the Lord in all that we say and do. That's really what we're about. Not just pleasant fellowship and general decency, but a revival, something that sprang from the seeds planted in the ashes of martyrdom. Can you imagine taking anything in your life that seriously? I hope so. And the spirit of Christ that empowered Charles and the explosive growth of the church in East Africa after his death is among us. It is just as much part of the Anglican tradition as the prayer book and the beautiful hymns and the vestments and two millennia of Christian worship and wisdom. That faithfulness unto the point of death and that revival is our heritage. Now there is a lot that we are called to do as the body of Christ in this place. From outreach and evangelism to discipling our children, from feeding the hungry to leading in our diocese from supporting church planters and missionaries to putting down roots in this community permanently. And all of these tasks are not possible and are actually not really worth even considering if we are not being animated by the Spirit of God, 
Look where he brought us already. Look what the Holy Spirit has done for us. Trace the line from Uganda in 1886 to Central Valley Road in 2019 and tell me what you think God can't do. We should pray that revival would break out among us. That we would all be so convicted by the power of God's spirit and the truth of the gospel that our hearts would be set on fire with the same kind of love so that we burn as bright as that blazing pyre that they built for our namesake 133 years ago tomorrow. Whatever may happen in the future, whatever twists and turns our story might take, I am convinced that God providentially gave us the name of St. Charles Luanga to help us remember that our faithfulness bears fruit in generations that remain unborn and in places you and I may never see. To remind us that we're called to pray and to trust God despite the circumstances, no matter how dire they might be, to trust the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit first, last, and always, even when we face great suffering. That is what Charles and his companions did for us. And that is what we are called to remember. That is the story that we should tell today and for years to come. Amen. Amen.